Now, as in the beginning, I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. When the foot seeks the place of the head, a sacred line is crossed. Know your place. Keep your place. Be a shoe. Hello and welcome to this episode of Game On Girl. I'm your host, Regina McMenemy. And I'm your co-host, Rhonda Oglesby. This is episode 142, recorded on December 18th, 2014. And Sandy Glon joins us once again to talk about some fantastic feminist topics. So stay tuned and thanks for listening to Game On Girl. Sandy Glan joins us once again to talk about first women and new women. We are hoping this will be a bit of a brainstorming session for a possible panel at Geek Girl Con next year, which would be October 2015. So, Sandy, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I always love talking to Game On Girls. Thank you. We always love having you here. Uh, What have you been up to since the last time we chatted? Well, it's the end of the semester and I'm a professor. So right about now, students start saying, hey, can we have coffee? And I'm thinking, no, because I assigned you a 20-page paper and now (laughs) I have 400 pages to grade while you're free. What was I thinking? I did that to myself. Yes, I I feel your pain. (laughs) Have you finished grading your papers, Regina? Uh, I've finished grading two of four classes of papers. Oh, good so. for you. You're halfway there. Yeah. I'm halfway there, yes. Well, we yeah. talked about Regina's assignment last time. What is their 20-page assignment, Sandy? Um, I teach a class that looks at the history of women, and they have to come up with their own philosophy of how they view women, sort of an anthropology cool. of woman that takes history into account. Nice. Yeah. I bet they really enjoy that. That's oh, I would really. I should. I should make that personal. I would really enjoy an assignment like that. I think they enjoy having done it. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like I feel about working out. Right. I don't like. Yes. It, I like having worked out. Yeah. Right. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Once it's done, you're like, I can reap the benefits of this now. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> That's the plan. And again, you've done a lot of traveling this year too. Ooh, yes. I I am getting ready to teach a course in medieval spirituality in Italy this summer. So there have been, is it three or four trips to Italy in the last 12 months? I can't even keep track anymore. But, yeah, I'm not complaining. Believe me, I'm not complaining. I knew you took a second one, but I didn't know you had taken a third. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, I was there in the summer, and then I was there again uh, in October. Wow. We're going to stay in monasteries rather than hotels. It's much less expensive um, and sort of more conducive to what we want to do. But it meant I kind of needed to go and make a site visit to every place we were going to be having these students pay to go. So, yeah, right. It's turned out pretty well. But anyway, yeah, I'm I'm ready to stay home for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that'll be good. That'll be really good. Well, it wasn't too long ago when um, we all started talking about how um, awesome it would be after um, we have these conversations. Um, Gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could do a panel together? And we immediately didn't have a topic. And then all of a sudden, one day, Regina emailed a topic and, yeah, (laughs) said first woman, new woman, or first women, new women, the evolution of gender roles. Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
Oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> well, you guys talk about it. Yeah, I would go to that panel to hear it, too. Yeah. So I guess from my perspective, what I was curious about is um, defining uh, first women and new women. Um, or are we talking about... Um, and I don't know what Regina had in mind, so maybe we can get her to kick it off. Or were yeah, you talking about um, a time period? Were you talking about an evolution in um, in feminism, or were you talking about uh, evolution in cultures or something like that? Uh, I was thinking more more along the lines of at least what I understand Sandy's research to be about the the women, you know, at the sort of beginning of culture um, and how. You know, we t- we've talked about that when Sandy's been on the show previously. That the the idea of uh, women being at home comes from you know early evolution, and that women stayed home with the stayed home or stayed in the camp with the with the with the children as the men went out and did the hunting, um, and kind of that idea of um, those 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 roles being based on what was necessary for survival, and and then how they kind of changed into what we have now or or and how they're still impacted by what we have now I guess is what I was thinking so as far as um the women staying at the camp now Mm -hmm. are we talking um Sandy or is are we talking globally is that with um with all cultures or 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 do we have just a one-sided perspective of that in America I think you have you have to look at what are we talking about geographically and what are we talking about in terms of time period. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about geographically, and I think that that is an important consideration. Um, because I mean, how, what a Native American woman did in the 1800s mm-hmm. is probably going to look fairly different from what a European woman. I'm thinking Jane yeah. Austen's, you know, <laughs> landed family. Uh, so some of that's going to be class, and some of that's going to be geographic. Um, right. But uh, if you if you think well, even let's take just the fir- first century BC. I mean, obviously civilization goes way way further mm-hmm. back than that. But I'm not really in a good position to speak to that. Um, but if you look at just let's say the first century BC, the era of Cleopatra and uh, Caesar Augustus, mm-hmm. and if you if you just sort of look at a, a map of the world, if you've got Jer- Jerusalem on the right and Athens in the middle and Rome on the left. Um, the further left you go, the further west you go, the more agency a woman is going to tend to have. Um, mm-hmm. So the the Middle East is going to be much more traditional, uh, going to have a lot more Bedouins, and you'll still see Bedouin women today in the camp. Can you um, define Bedouin? Sure. Uh, I think of Bedouin women, well, when I was in, in Jordan, for example, um, they we spent the night in a camel tent, camel hair tent which was pretty much the way the Bedouins live. They, they travel mm. based on grazing ground for their uh, livestock. Ah, okay. They don't have one place that they're, they always stay. And, I mean, they've done this since the days of Esau probably and, and even mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and that's still happening today. And it's actually been uh, a, very, a very good thing for their culture in that it has kept them from, being, uh, from ever being overtaken by anyone. Because it's very hard to conquer people that are constantly moving around and don't have one central leader. Sure. Um, so anyway, um, if you if you look so if you look at the ancient Near East uh, or the less ancient Near East, the first century Near East, 
uh, it's going to be a lot more conservative than, say, your woman in Rome. But an exception to that would be a woman in Ephesus. So that's today is on the west coast of Turkey. Ephesus is going to be the capital of the richest province at the time. Uh, Anthony and Cleopatra are going to have a little liaison there. You've got the Temple of Artemis there. And there's all kinds of evidence that women in Ephesus, compared to the rest of the world, had a lot more autonomy. You have them uh, as patrons a lot. You see their names all over because anytime somebody paid something for a, a, a civil service, a municipal service, got their name on it. So mm. um, women's names very commonly throughout Ephesus inscribed on in the bathhouses and you know, pretty much all over. And that gives us sort of a hint as to the kind of work, at least that upper class women can do. It's a lot more difficult, as you can imagine, to trace what the lower classes were doing. Because if you don't have literacy, there's not much of a written record. I imagine that that kind of continues into current times, too. I imagine it probably does. Yeah. Yeah. But the one exception to that would be going south to Egypt, because, again, you think of Cleopatra. Um, women mm-hmm. had a lot of autonomy in Egypt, uh, even sort of what we would consider reverse gender roles, where the men were sort of submissive and the wives sort of gave commands. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really one gender role that's sort of, uh, right. you know, transcultural, trans time. But there are certain patterns since, since women reproduce and men don't that have, have, you know. Yeah, certain similarities to certain things that continue to, to happen. Yeah, and, you know, pregnancy does, as you know, tend to limit mm-hmm. um, some physical labor that you might do. Yeah. Um, and so the division of labor was really pretty practical. Yeah. All the way well, really till the Industrial Revolution, which sort of changed everything. Yeah, that's part of what I was thinking about in terms of when I when I when I lit on this idea and I can't even really tell you sometimes when I have ideas like this they just they literally just hit me. I'm like, Okay, what about this? Yeah. <laughs> it's part of what we love about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is one of my strains. <laughs> Thankfully Rhonda's the grounded one. <laughs> yeah, I like you to think that. Why not? Why not? <laughs> Fail in uncharted territory because it's interesting. Come on, let's go. Right, right, exactly. I'm like, well, whatever. Let's throw this out there and see what happens from it. But that's part of what I was thinking about was um, was looking at how how autonomy began and how it changed and and then you know more of what I know I would say would be you know 20th century gender roles and how they changed um, even post industrial revolution but with the women's rights movement and and things like that are more things that's what i was thinking of for new women or new women um you know what has changed that's where the feminism would come in or talking about feminism and you know the waves of feminism and all that stuff you know would come and kind of come in and and how things have changed but also how they really haven't in some ways because there is still a lot of that um uh, those same kind of roles or, like you said, the bio- biological necessity that kind of comes in from bearing children. So, Regina, do you see from um, the first women, if we are, ta- if just as, as a broad definition, if we say that before the Industrial Revolution and then we say the new women um, at, the, at the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. um, but there is an evolution we're not talking about a single point in time where Mm-mm. that that industrial revolution was the pivotal point of of evolution. We, we, there actually is a 
is a progression from beginning and continuously, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and like Sandy said, it's it's different compared to different cultures and different locations, and and how that all that changes it as well. And there's a pendulum swing. One that comes mm-hmm. to mind um, if if you think of uh, social justice and how mm-hmm. the, the early Methodists in in Europe were very uh, inclusive of women in that effort. You had the beginning mm-hmm. of the Salvation Army with Catherine Wilkes Booth as being one of the co-founders. And then you, that same sort of strand of the church becomes much more conservative after first wave feminism, and especially mm-hmm. after second. So it's not like it's an evolution, but it's not like an evolution in the same direction. Sometimes right. it's, a, it's more a pendulum swinging back and forth. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't follow a bell curve, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're not following in that, or or even like an upswing of you know, a, a ch- where you could chart it from. You know, first women are here down in the lower you know yeah. quadrant, and then new women are up here in the mm. upper quadrant. It, it does. It doesn't work like that either, because you do have these these pits and valleys and the kind of back and forth between you know uh, generations, and some generations are just you know, inherently more conservative and some are less. I mean, I'm thinking of like, you know, you look at the 60s and, and the 70s and, and again, kind of how that changed and, and you know. Yeah, and even you were t- reading Lolita in Iran, right? You have right. women exactly. in Iran with incredible autonomy and now pretty much don't see that. Mm-hmm. And these these uh, spikes, the things that, that cause the pendulum to swing one way or the other. Um, Sandy, you mentioned you mentioned one after um, the first wave of feminism and how the church became more conservative, how the pendulum swung in reaction. Um, is that typically what happens? Is is there some sort of cultural reaction, um, uh, a war or um, a religious? action or event that tends to uh, steer this pendulum for gender roles? Um, Well, I I don't know if I can really answer that. I will say that I think every generation tries to do the opposite of what their parents did. (laughs) Right? Yes. (laughs) So, you know, we have a family member who was raised by hippies and she works for the FBI. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like... She works for the man, yeah. right? It's re- it's reactionary. There's yeah. there's a reactionary element of I'm not I'm not my mother's daughter, yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe hey, maybe that's what we should call it. <laughs> I'm not yeah. my mother's daughter. Yeah. Oh, that's you very know, interesting. It is, and then we could talk about like we could maybe make some comparisons and say, you know, okay, this generation led to this and this generation. Because you mentioned in the emails that we were exchanging, Sandy, you talked about the flappers. And 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 how how you know revolutionary they were, and then the generation right after that, I think, was much more conservative, right? Yeah. 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 So you know, I think there's lots of play in that, and I was actually thinking about that too, because you know, I, I I'm kind of in a unique position because my mom was 39 when she had me, and coincidentally, I was 39 when I had my daughter. Um, there's two generations between me and my mom. We're not, you know. We're not. I'm not bucking up against her generation, and I always knew that. I was always conscious of that as 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 I was kind of growing up. You know, sh- she came from very conservative. She was, you know, the 19 late 1950s housewife. Um, in that 
bounce back of, of World War II, where after the women had gone into, you know, the industrial um, uh, factories to support the war, you know, the bounce back from that was the baby boom. Right. And a woman's right. place is at home. And yes, Freud did not help that at all because not at all. Penis envy if you want to keep the job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I was thinking that that could be an interesting, you know, place to discuss, too, you know, how 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 that works or how that doesn't work. So if you were to define um, your mom's gender role, Regina, as um, a first woman gender roles, uh, how are they dissimilar from you? If we label you the new woman, um, Mm -hmm. what is what is did you see in her gender roles? Wow. Well, my my mom was a stay at home mom. She didn't have a job. She didn't have a career. Um, she, you know, her her basis was, you know, her. Let me step back from even that. Um, my mom grew up in a in a not great uh, family of origin. Uh, her parents were uh, pretty severe alcoholics, and the only way for my mom to get out of the house was to get married. Mm. So she got married at seventeen, um, and she eloped. So it wasn't even, you know let's plan a, a marriage. It was, let's go to Reno and get married so she could get out of my grandparents' house, essentially. Um, and because that was that was the emotional need for my mom, she, she had to, you know, emotionally get away from what was happening at home, um, and that was her, her exit. Um, and so that started, you know, okay, this, that started her life, essentially. So she she had a reactionary role mm-hmm. then as well because of the environment yeah. she came out of and mm-hmm. what do you think react in a reactionary way that she, that how did she lead her gender role do you think as as it was influenced by her she well she, she kind of I, i'm trying to figure out a way to kind of characterize my mom um in that you know she was always very fiercely independent even though she was hampered by what was expected of a woman. She wanted to go to art school. Uh, she wanted to go to finish high school and graduate and go to art school and learn how to paint. And when she told my grandfather she was going to do that, he said, no, you're a woman. You'll have babies. You know, that's what women do. You don't go to school. And I think for uh, in a lot of ways, I think that kind of crushed my mother's spirit about pursuing that as, you know, you want to do when you're, you know, one of father's like, no, you don't do that. You have babies. So she didn't have babies. And, um, and she started that life with my, with my father and, and, and she loved it. I mean, my mother loves being a mother, you know, very much so, but to, to take an instance of like, I think about my mother's feminism as being different, very different from mine because I was raised in the mindset of you can do anything you want. And she made sure that as her daughter, I saw that repeatedly. You can do whatever you want. You can play whatever sports you want. You can do whatever dance or, you know, performance, whatever you want to do, you want to write, you can do that. Um, and as an example of how my mother manifests that in her life, my mom didn't know how to drive. You know, like I said, she left home at 17. My father didn't want her to learn how to drive. He did not want her to be able to drive. So my mother bought a car for like $50. Now, this is back when you could buy a car for $50. And it was a lot of money, of course, at that time. Um, But it was, you know, a jalopy and, you know, but it was running. And she had every family member she could talk into take her out to teach her how to drive. 
and she got her license and that has been like her, you know, like a big rebellion for her was, was learning how to drive. And it gave her so much more independence because by that time she had my three brothers and she needed to be able to get around. Like she was going to the grocery store on foot and they lived in the suburbs. So they weren't anywhere near really, you know, like the corner grocer or something like that. So it completely changed her life. And she always tells me or she would always tell me that story as a, you know, you know what you need and you need to keep in mind as a woman yourself of what you need. So that's essentially where my mother's feminism comes from and where she bucked against those, you know, limitations that the men in her life were sort of putting around her. What about you, Sandy? What type of uh, what type of uh, feminism or gender role did you see in your mother? Um, my mom married at 20. Dad was 30. Um, there, uh, wow, I think mom was a stay-at-home mom of five children, but she uh, had gone to two years of teacher's college and always wanted to be a teacher. And I think she really was a teacher. She just had you know, mm-hmm. five pupils for life. Um, <laughs> but, but she, my dad, I mean, At the church spaghetti dinner, dad was the one operating the dishwasher. On Sunday morning, so that we could, she could get five children ready, he was making us sourdough pancakes or sourdough waffles with blueberry syrup, you know, made homemade from blueberries he'd picked off of the I-5 freeway growing wild, right? So, um. Fantastic. So it, I didn't know that it was feminism, you know, it was Mm -hmm. just, you know, it's just what you grow up with. So right. consequently, the feminism in my home was more moderate because I saw partnership all the time. Right. I, I saw what a healthy partnership looked like. And um, that's not to say there wasn't any sexism in my home. But the sexism in my home that I, well, for example, um, there was more money for my brothers to go to college than there was for me. Okay. Hmm. Um, they were a priority yeah. because they were going, going to be the breadwinners. Right. And um, so my, you know, my father-in-law was the one who helped me get through. Um, so I, I, it's really a mixed bag. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So for each of you then, seeing these um, first women gender roles, um, especially for you, Sandy, what would you say – is any recollection of some of the first sexism you feel like that you saw where you were like, huh, that's that's kind of contrary to what I understood. The first sexism I saw was at work, um, which I, I guess I should really be grateful for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that I was old enough to work um, and there were the conversations about equal pay. Um, we were not allowed to talk about our salaries, and I suspected it was because we weren't being paid an equitable wage. Men were allowed to pinch us and get away with it. Get away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'm very thankful for a lot of the changes that have happened in employment law. Um, and it, it wasn't. Just, it was sexism and racism at the same time. You know, we had the yeah. the the law required us to hire a certain number of minorities. And I was very frustrated with the attitude of some of the managers that they, quote, had to hire them. So it was women and minorities pretty much lumped in together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pretty much white men in charge of everything. And anybody else really had to 
pay close attention to have they had their coffee yet? Are they approachable yet? Well, yeah. Studied the people in power as if we were married to them. <laughs> Paying atten- very close attention to their moods and what's a good time and what's wise. Yeah. What about you, Regina? What what were some of the first signs you remember seeing that um, the feminism was or, or sexism was the gender roles were different than what you had perceived? Um, I think it, it it was more in my childhood. I'm I'm actually thinking of a picture of myself because um, remember when we we talked about the site that that was talking about band bossy Rhonda yeah the not to call little girls who are you know um, assertive bossy yeah that that was very personal for me because I remember um, I grew up with a um, my my siblings were my parents first family. <laughs> so my brothers are like 20 years older than me. So I didn't grow up with my, my brothers. They were like uncles. Um, so I had neighborhood friends who were kind of the, the more like sibling-like who I grew up, you know, playing with and, and having interactions with. And two houses down from us lived Darren. And he and I were the same age. And we were at a birthday party for um, another neighbor, Mandy. And in the picture... Um, and I remember when the picture was taken, I remember the party, um, we were getting ready to, we were all lining up to throw um, the basketball in the basketball hoop. And in the picture, I'm like holding my hand to hold like somebody back from the line so that I can take my turn. And you can very clearly see Darren with his hands on his hips. <laughs> and he, you know, told me, Regina, don't be so bossy. And I remember, you know, that because he would have done exactly the same thing and it wouldn't have been my, I wouldn't have called him bossy for it. Wow. You know, that wouldn't have been the word that came to mind. I wouldn't have thought that about him, even though he probably would have been just as bossy as I were. We were both strong personalities. So, um, as you can maybe imagine, (laughs) (laughs) I'll see if I, I think I, I think I know where that picture is. I'll see if I can put it up with this post, but I very much remember that, that sense of, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of that person who, when when there's no control and nobody's in charge of a situation, I just naturally kind of lead into it, and I'm like, okay, let's do this. And I remember, you know, I was trying to get everybody in line so that we could, you know, throw the basketball, but you had to be far enough back to do it. So I was just trying; wasn't like telling her no. I was just trying to get the line back so that everybody could throw the ball. But it, that's not how it was interpreted, and it was interpreted yeah. that I was being bossy. So That's interesting. I remember uh, in that first job that I had, I was working in an employment office, actually, and I remember somebody circulated a list of things that we call women that we would never call men uh, mm-hmm. and vice versa, and and it really resonating with me. And, and bossy was on the list. Yeah. Shrewd, yep. uh, sh- a shrew was another one. Yes. Mm. Um, yep. sh- uh, shrill voice. Mm-hmm. Um, just certain, it, it had to be pointed out for me to see it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it probably says more about me than it does about the justice <laughs> I was actually living with, but um, definitely yeah. on my radar now. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, I I think about it, and I think about my friends' kids, and and I, I started sort of recognizing the way that I would talk to other people's kids, like, oh, you know, he's going to be such a heartbreaker or that kind of thing. And oh, he's such a you know she's such a flirt. Even he's such a flirt. And I'm like, why am I, you know, why am I saying these things? I'm like, oh, it's you know, there's sort of like this ingrained idea of these are how you talk about little boys and this is how you talk about little girls. And I'm like, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody, we can just talk about everybody. You know. 
Nobody has to be bossy. You can just be in charge. You can be a leader. Yeah. Nothing wrong with being a leader. There's nothing wrong with being a leader. Exactly. <laughs> Go, girl. <laughs> so r- lately, and this is to me, I'm not quite sure that we can we can look at it. And when we're, we've we've talked about everything from first century to present day, but say that we look at the recent events over the past couple of years, specifically through social media and online and the news about feminism and uh, the way that we are communicating with each other and uh, calling women out, uh, the rape threats and the different types of things that have made headlines. As far as the Internet and social media era is concerned, do you think that this is going to have an, any type of uh, a push, effect, or ma- any kind of movement in feminism at all? Is it going to give it uh, some light? Is it going to progress this evolution, or is the pendulum swing in the opposite direction? Well, I think that it already has. Um, yeah. If you, I mean, for Emma Watson to stand before the UN mm-hmm. and, yep. and use the F word and and not, uh, you know, the F, feminism F word and not yes. feel yeah. like she needed to qualify it or back off from it, I think, um, uh, and again, to, to speak of the subculture, which I study a lot, which is the evangelical church, there's a best-selling book out right now called Jesus Feminist where, uh, you know, an unlikely suspect is basically reclaiming the word and saying we are against sexism and sexism directed at women is called, you know, people who are on board to fight sexism against women are called feminists. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing to fight sexism. Sexism is a bad thing. Right. So I'm still careful what subcultures I use the F word in, um, but I'm, I'm finding myself more comfortable using it because I think it is regaining um, it's not so much that it's regaining, it's that it's losing its association with man-hating. Right. And see, I feel like I'm seeing the opposite. Really? Tell us. Uh, yeah, it depends on where you're looking. Yeah, it, yeah. and I'm, I'm talking specifically about social media because that's the reaction that I tend to, to constantly get with the whole, um, whether it's in gaming communication or through the whole Gamergate situation where uh, we were talking about women in German journalism and the way people were treating them and Anita Sarkeesian, all of the reactions that I read were flying back to the old viewpoints of feminism in that you're a bunch of man haters. And I was just well, shocked by that. Yeah, I, I think, and I, and I know, I know exactly what you're talking about because I was, I was watching those same conversations and all that, you know, crud happening I, I think that that's because of what Sandy's saying. I, I, I think it's I think it's the pendulum. I think it's the reactionary to women are really gaining mm. you know a foothold, and and the our and the equality is is changing. You know it's it's leaning more toward an equal uh, world, and I think that that scares people who have male privilege. So. Their reaction to that is to say, oh, this is because you're a man-hater, because it's, 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 it's an easy out, and it's an easy reactionary thing. And then it takes you off target mm. of what the conversation should be about, because the conversation should be about, no, 
that's not what this is. But then it's like, then it becomes personal because then you're calling that person a man-hater instead of feminism about man-hating. You're calling that person a a man-hater. So I don't know. I think it's, I think those things are going together. Okay. So a lot of what frustrates me about the conversations that are going on right now on social media to me are counterproductive because I feel like that if you say anything harsh or critical at all, you make a headline. And so I'm not completely convinced necessarily that everyone who's making harsh comments are actually sexist as they are making a headline. How much how much do you accredit some of this to just social media celebrityism? Uh, you know, I think there's probably some of that going. I, I think I'm more I'm more likely to to give it that knee jerk. Your your questioning of my privilege is making me freak out as 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 more of a basis for the reaction. In terms of the GamerGate, I even hate saying the word uh-huh. um, to give it any kind of um, credibility. But one of the guys who was um, you know kind of leading the it's really about ethics and games journalism you know side of things wrote this huge letter of apology to Brianna Wu who we had oh, on the show. Yeah apologizing and saying, you know, you're winning because, you know, because she was reacting in a way that was ethical and, you know, upfront and, you know, just putting kind of everything out there. And he's like, you're winning and I was wrong. And I didn't see, I didn't see the forest for the trees is essentially Mm -hmm. the, you know, the summation of what his letter to her had said. And it was all anonymous, you know, she didn't like put out who it it was or what his name was or anything like that. But, to, if you have one person who had that evolution of thought going on through it, it means that there were at least, you know, a percentage of other people who had that process that just didn't vocalize it. Yeah. Well, so, I don't know. Sandy, you're in a, um, a unique position. It's one of the reasons why we really enjoy talking to you inside of um, a much more conservative environment than Regina and I run in. How are you? Na- how do you navigate the waters for feminism in a more conservative environment? Well, I think one thing that keeps me going is that there are so many people whose hearts are changing. I had three guys in the class that I just finished teaching, and the first day of the semester, when they just you know grad students talking about why am I interested in this topic, and all three of them said, "I'm going to be in leadership." And I recognize my male privilege, and I'm here to listen and find out how can I empower women. I'm in a conservative place where people are making statements like that. Yeah, I'm going to stay. I'm going to help you know how to do that. And so it's very energizing. To I'm constantly seeing people's minds changed and conversations of people listening better on both sides. So I I think it's because the heart of this issue is justice. And, Mm -hmm. And I really, really believe that the human heart knows when it sees justice and um, it might take a long time. um, But I'll tell you, I'll tell a quick story of of part of what keeps me going too. Um, I have a niece who's African-American. She joined our family through adoption and my daughter joined my family through adoption. And the two of them are eight days apart. And my niece lives in Washington, D.C. So I was standing at the base of the Lincoln Memorial on a Christmas trip. And on one hand, I had my eight-year-old daughter. And on the other hand, I was holding... Um, the hand of my eight-year-old niece, and we're getting ready to go up the steps, but I'm just old enough to remember Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. 
um, my, my parents were very against racism, make, made sure I knew who this was. So I, I sort of paused there and stopped and said, wow, this is, you know, look up. That's where Dr. Martin Luther King was standing when he gave his I Have a Dream speech. Mm-hmm. And the girl said, what was his dream? And I said, you know, they're thinking like he felt like he had a dream. And I said, he dreamed that someday people like you two would be able to play together. And they both burst out laughing and said, that's ridiculous. We're in the same family. Mm-hmm. And I thought, if that could happen in one generation on the race question, we still have a long way to go on race. But yeah. um, but the idea of children playing together is not a, a, an unusual idea. Um, right. Is have changed enough that it was silly to my to my daughter and my niece. So I keep remembering that in one generation, it can change on the woman question, too. Yeah. Well, just the fact that you were standing there holding hands <laughs> with two children <laughs> of, you know, different race, you know, that alone. Yeah. You know, and yeah. th- it's come up a few times. I've had um, some young adults come up to me at cons and and ask me, you know, who are our, our feminist role models? And I it, this is a topic that I would love to investigate with you two again on another mm-hmm. subject. How many how many episodes could we have? But I mean I would put forth that Sandy is a great feminist role model because you've really broken a lot of ground and barriers um, where you're at. I mean, you were the first woman in a lot of situations at Dallas Theological Seminary, and that that's a, that's a phenomenal accomplishment for women. And you're you're very highly respected. I mean, were you the first woman to do the um, the um, is it the morning? Pr- it's not the morning prayer. Um, chapel. chapel. No, actually, you. you know, there's an interesting story about that. When I was working on my Ph.D., one of my uh, and I was getting at the University of Texas at Dallas. One of my course assignments and one of the classes I took was to choose any organization and trace their history of women. And to DTS's credit, they opened up their archives to me and their archivist worked anything that was confidential. She went through page by page and uh, made a photocopy and then X'd it out so I couldn't see it, so that I would have access to everything. Um, and I interviewed our second president, who's quite old and retired, but he said that when he became president was the time when they were allowing women in. And it was right as he became president, and people there was a lot of cultural backlash saying, you know, the former president, we know what he would have done, or you know what the founder would have done. And he said, well, actually, the founder was the one who invited the first woman to speak in chapel. She had an orphanage going in Asia and was highly respected. And I'm really not blazing that much new ground. (laughs) And that was pretty much his take on it. And uh, so, no, I actually wasn't the first woman to speak in chapel. But this is the pendulum I'm talking about. So many people don't even realize our history. But Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the first maybe, you know, in this generation but in previous generations, it wasn't that unusual. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the, the other thing that you had just briefly mentioned in the email, Sandy, was, you know, thinking, your mo- you know, naturally that your mother's generation was more conservative than yours is. And and that's not always the case. Not always the case. Mm, not always the case at all. And it's really interesting to think about that and, and to think about that in terms of if we're looking at, 
you know, the waves of feminism and we had, you know, the first wave that was all about getting the vote and, oh God, I can't even remember. De Juro, I think is what it's called, right? Um, and then the second wave was de facto, right, where they were working on getting the numbers up and getting more women out in positions of power and in elected roles and such. And then third wave, which is just really complex in terms of identity. And people have been floating the idea that the fourth wave of feminism has started. Have you? Yeah, I, I had I don't a student know. who just wrote a paper on that. Um, nice. She she was talking about how she has she joined a knitting group online so that the fourth wave is using technology and going overseas even to go back to traditional women's work and valuing what has been undervalued. Right. So mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Yeah. The very thing that the, the second wave was trying to lose because it meant something right. negative is now something positive to the fourth wave. So whether or not there's a fourth wave, I heard Gloria uh, Steinem in person say she's not even sure there's a third wave, but that's a whole yeah, debate. I've heard that. I've heard that, too, you know, and and considering the source it coming from Gloria Steinem, I can understand why she wouldn't want there to be a third wave. So, you know, you know, I I do think I think it is evolving. And I I had a student uh, several years ago who said uh, that she wouldn't consider herself a feminist because a teacher at our local community college had told her she couldn't be a feminist because she had chosen to stay home with her children. Oh, wow. And I went, like, I went crazy. I was like, <laughs> like oh. excuse me. No, it's about but choice. It's, about, it's choice. about choice. Yeah. The, the whole reason why we did this is so people had a choice. And now, mind you, this student who, who you know, who is telling me the story had served in the military. Wow. You know, and I'm like, you can't. Yeah. So she's not a feminist because she stayed home with her kids, but she served her country, which, you know, a small percentage of women do and couldn't. Be, no. Right. I was, yeah. I had a, re- I was like, this tell world, me who this yeah. person is. Yeah. I need to have a chat with her. <laughs> well, I hate to wrap up yeah. our time, but I want to, um, to leave with uh, one last question. What is um, today's feminism doing wrong? Um I don't think there is any one feminism. It's part of the challenge. It's a very, very broad spectrum. Just like, you know, take any ism, racism, um, classism. There are pockets where people are um, being unwise in how they communicate in a way as to shut down communication rather than to promote it. Um, Yeah. It's a pretty wide spectrum. Yeah, and I would agree with that, too. I I think anything anything that, that limits open and honest communication, I, I think is where feminism goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, oh, and I forgot to forward this to you, Rhonda, but we got an email from a listener, a new listener, who said one of the things uh, he appreciated about the show so much was that we were so open-hearted in our discussions and that we wanted people to be heard. Oh, nice. Good for you. And I was really, yeah, I, I really took that to heart as, as a really, um, a really, nice compliment to what we were doing here because that is really what, you know, platforms should be open and, and allowing people to have their, their own opinions and, and to work through those opinions and to, you know, kind of one of the best things you can do when you're looking at any ism in the world is, is figure out where your biases come from. And if you can start kind of working back to, to where these conclusions are that you've drawn, then that's the best that you can do. So, 
when we shut down conversations and when we shut people down and when we tell people that they they aren't allowed to have an opinion because it differs from yours and that leads into a rape or sexual harassment threat or something like that even if it's you know on social media or wherever it is those are bad things yeah and those needs and i want to add one more too and i think the excuse me the iphone i i everything lower you know lowercase i everything means mm-hmm. that it's so easy to get our news tailored to what we already think. Yes. To mm-hmm. download what we already think. I mean, it used to be you had to watch yes. the news that some expert had screened. You had yes. to read a newspaper that some expert had screened. And we are being exposed to fewer ideas that differ from, you know, you unfriend somebody if you don't like what they say. Or you quit following them on Twitter and eventually mm-hmm. you only receive what you already believe. Right. And then you have nothing that challenges you and nothing that that is outside your already established worldview. So I, I would add to what that listener says uh, to, to compliment you on just having different opinions on the show not, other than the Rhonda and, <laughs> yeah. you know, just the two of you, Regina and Rhonda talking, yep. but to bring yeah. in outside views. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I really hate, oh God, we could just keep talking and just bust this up into like two or three shows. Just have so much fun to talk about. And we barely even in touch the surface, but yeah, um, right now, Sandy, do you have any writing projects going on? Um, I've got, I did a um, scholarly, uh, what's the word for it? I, I did a presentation at a scholarly seminar on my Artemis of the Ephesians of the first century research, Ephesus research, and that is going to be produced as two journal articles. Awesome. So just something really academic. And then um, I have been asked to, just today, in fact, by a publisher, had a request from Barnes & Noble to write some sort of spiritual reflections that uh, I have permission to get some of my students working on that with me, sort of as general editor. Um, so, uh, there's a, there's a novel. I have some edits to do and then get back to my agent. Um, all of these things on my to-do list, hoping once <laughs> I get through those 400 pages of grading, I assign. So you do have a, a fiction piece that may be, pu- that's in the works to get published. Yeah. Awesome. That was, that was actually part of my dissertation was to write a novel. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, I look forward to that. Been looking forward to that yeah. for a while. Cool. Historical, uh, historical fiction love it yeah very cool well we always love when uh sandy's on the show and i hope our listeners have enjoyed um the conversation today if you've got any questions or comments please post them on the site uh we keep all of this around because that's what um, this communication is all about being able to hash these ideas out yeah understand the definitions and um Come up with a common language. Communication is the most difficult thing in the world, and we're we're all speaking English, and we still have trouble uh, communicating. If you've ever had a, a significant other or a best friend, you know what that's like. <laughs> I thought you were going to take the trash out. No. <laughs> you said... <laughs> but anyway, we love we love you guys um, listening on the show. You've just got great ideas, so be sure and uh, let us know what you think. You've been listening to Game on Girl. You can find all our social media connections on our website, GameOnGirl.com. I'm the co-host, Rhonda Oglesby. You can find me on Twitter at Row Room. That's R-H-O-R-H-O-O-M. Email Rhonda at GameOnGirl.com, or I'm on Tumblr and Instagram. 
And I'm your host, Regina McMenemy, or Doc Liz with two Z's, as I'm known on various and sundry places in the internet. A bountiful thank you to Sandy uh, for helping us end a fantastic 2014 yeah. here on Game on Girl. I mean, what a way to close out the year, right? So much fun. So much fun. And I'm looking forward to our panel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I can't wait to. I hope. I hope. I hope it. I hope it gets accepted because I think it'll be fantastic. Uh, just a reminder to our listeners: um, we recorded, or we're about to, since we're recording on Thursday. On Saturday, we're going to be participating in a live old-time radio show on Radio Fubar production of A Christmas Carol, um, and there will be a rebroadcast Wednesday, December twenty-fourth at seven p.m. Central. Um, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. So if you don't get a chance to catch us on Saturday, um, which this recording will go live after that, um, definitely make sure to check out our rebroadcast on uh, 7 p.m. on Christmas Eve. What it, I think it would be a very nice like Christmas Eve activity. Yeah, pull out that eggnog and spike it up and yeah, <laughs> get some sit around your computer. Yep. Put put you know put the put the radio station on. Get like. You know, one of the fake like Yule log things on the other side of your screen, so you can be listening to us mm-hmm. and then looking at a you know fire on the other side of the screen, and just you know make a little event of it. Yep, I've already I found that on Hulu. I've been playing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I had them on 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 loop last year. On they had three episodes of like uh, Christmas fireplace or something like that on Netflix, <laughs> and I, I played it all through Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> It's really fun. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, you can check out Game on Girl on iTunes and Stitcher streaming. You can also stream directly from our podcast host, Podbean. So you can check us out there as well. These links, along with references made in the show, and maybe a picture of me as a little kid, uh, can be found on our website at GameOnGirl.com. This podcast is edited by Ryan Broom at Desert Tree Media. And the theme song, Good Day, by Triple Fox, is used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time... Game on!